0: Hey everybody! Welcome to "It Never Rains" on this podcast. I'm Hitlerday. I'm the managing editor for Addicted to Quack. It's a website. Uh, joining me this week is one of our great writers at ATQ, Badwater. How you doing? Uh, doing all right.
1: Feeling much better. Um, yeah, I had a major surgery about a month ago, and yeah, in fact, we had a a couple of writers that were on the deal didn't we uh, uh
0: we did it was an interesting management challenge but that's why they pay me the big bucks <laughs> yeah well oh uh, and i hope your surgery went okay that's yeah, the it, secondary thing
1: it, it did it, it it went really well and uh, i think uh, what was going on behind the scenes was kind of transparent to the addicted to quack readers so it's all good
0: uh i don't think that's what transparent means but that's fine uh <laughs> Um, so, uh, speaking of, uh, not, uh, going down the way that we want it to, uh, the diamond ducks went down to Los Angeles this weekend, um, and, uh, got skunked, uh, th- three games for both baseball and softball, three losses. Um, let's start talking about softball. Uh, first of all, general impressions, uh,
1: that the, uh, UCLA, that the UCLA softball team just has some really outstanding pitchers.
0: Uh, I definitely agree with that.
1: And they just totally shut down the duck bats. You know, it's pretty sad when, um, when our softball team is down um, by two or three, and you're just getting the impression that this is kind of insurmountable, which, you know, given, given the strength of the offense, uh, up to this point in the season, uh, shouldn't be the case, but yeah, you know, that's how dominant the UCLA pitching was.
0: Yeah. It was interesting because, you know, while I thought UCLA's offense was fine, um, both in, in the preview, uh, that, you know, that we discussed with slurms and, and one of you guys wrote, I think, uh, uh, of UCLA. It, it wasn't like their offense is a killer offense, you know, that's like putting up 15 runs every game. Like they uh, it's a defense-led team and the offense does more than enough to win, but it's not like they're overwhelming you. Um and that was exactly what happened in this game. Um it was, you know, they they were just de- like, I'll just put it this way. They were just, you know, I-, I think the UCLA players were just better than the Oregon players in this series. Like, I don't think that that necessarily has to be set in stone or will last forever or anything. But it was just like, you know, in previous softball games that I've watched this year and in previous years under Lombardi, uh, you know, it seemed like Oregon just simply had an athletic advantage over their opponents. So I was talking about this with Storms last week where it was like, you could see them stealing bases or turning, you know, single plays into double plays, um, you know, or crisp fielding, beating folks to the, to, to the plate, you know, on squeeze, you know, you know, they're you know, just, just, just like they're better athletes than the, the opponents that they were playing. And then they played against UCLA and, I'll put it this way. They were definitely not the better athletes. Um, It was either equal or they were behind, you know, like this. In fact, a lot of the stuff that I'd seen Oregon doing to lesser teams, I felt like I was seeing UCLA doing to Oregon um, when it came to, you know, their UCLA's fielding versus Oregon's offense. What do you think about that uh, hypothesis?
1: Well, um, I would agree with you and kind of point out that, uh, especially in this latest softball game, the uh, the Bruins had some fielding errors, and, yeah, a couple of them, and uh, Oregon was only able to minimize minimalize um, and you know minimalize their capitalization of those errors. Uh, so uh, again, it kind of boiled down to pitching and shutting down the Oregon bats, I and mean, they did get some productivity off the ucla fielding errors but you know really wasn't as much as i might have expected
0: and they knocked a couple of home runs um but you know you weren't really seeing small ball you know you weren't really taking advantage of you know stolen bases that sort of thing um i guess another thing that could be said is silver lining or maybe grasping at straws is that uh you know, this wasn't that Cal, that first game in the Cal series where they got mercy ruled, you know, like, I don't think Oregon was embarrassed in this series. Yes, they were swept. Um, but like, you know, what each one of these games was decided by, you know, one, two, three runs, you know, they were competitive into the late innings, you know what I'm saying? Um, like, even though in my opinion, I think they were playing a superior team. Um, Like, it it didn't feel like they were ever out of these games or it was hopeless or whatever. I know you said, you know, a minute ago that, like, you know, there's no way they're getting out of this deficit because the pitching is too good. But, I mean, there's that, you know, a two-run deficit and there's a seven-run deficit, you know?
1: Yeah, uh, absolutely. And you're playing the number three team in the nation and they show why they're number three.
0: Yeah, honestly, I think this might be the best team in the country. Like, I, I've seen them play. I've seen some of the other teams that UCLA has played and uh, and that are highly ranked. I mean, this team could go the distance and, like, staying competitive, yes, in a sweep. But at, at home, you know, the Ducks were on the road. UCLA was at home. Uh, you know, and, and, and what? Oregon scored a combined five runs. UCLA scored a combined 12 runs, you know, over three games. Like, eh it's not, it's not getting crushed. Uh, you know, it's reason to believe that Lombardi is building a a very solid, very competitive team. And, you know, they they just need to continue building and continue adding talent and, uh, you know, uh, softball and baseball are games in which, you know, they're, they're games of inches. You get a little bit faster and now you've beaten the throat of the bag. You know what I mean? Like,
1: yep. Yeah, and um, like you say, they they didn't get crushed. Um, they played a really good team, and hopefully, uh, Oregon has learned some things that they can take into the uh, the rest of the Pac-12 season. And you know, it still looks like they're uh, set up to be getting in the uh, College World Series. So, so there's that to look forward to.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure that the rankings have come out yet, but I don't ex- – they were number 12 playing the number three. I don't expect they're going to fall out of the rankings. Um, and they uh, – uh, you know, th- their next series coming up this week, they don't have any midweek games. Their next series is a three-game series against Arizona State, which I believe is also a ranked team and and in the standings are number two. Uh, in the conference, so and this, you know, this series is going to be played in in Jane Sanders and Eugene. A little opportunity to uh, to to, you know, prove that they're not a second tier team. Um, what do you think about uh, this series coming up?
1: Well, I'm kind of uh, excited to see how they um, go against a, a ranked Arizona uh, State team. I haven't uh, completely scouted. Um, the Sun Devils yet, but yeah, I'm looking for Oregon to uh, kind of bounce back from some you know tough losses where they you know they they did really scrap this last weekend and gave it their best shot. So uh, you know resilience in coming off of a sweep is kind of a big deal in my mind and for them mentally. So looking forward to the series.
0: Arizona state's 25 and five on the season, um, which is pretty, you know, damn good. They lost to Oklahoma State, one of the better teams in the country. Um, they lost to Missouri state, which is not, um, uh, didn't have a particularly challenging out of conference schedule, and then in conference they've they're six and zero, but that constitutes two sweeps against Oregon State and uh, Arizona, both of which were played uh, in the state of Arizona. They haven't uh, left the state of Arizona yet to play a conference game. Uh, they've swept uh, both Arizona and Oregon State. Uh, Arizona is the worst team in the conference; they're one and eight in conference, twenty and twelve overall. Um, Oregon State is ranked number three in the conference. They're five and four, you know, with those three losses. It's still sort of early in conference play, but there's a possibility that Arizona State is a bit of a paper tiger. Um, uh, we will look forward to uh, the coverage on Addicted to Quack, you know, previewing Arizona State, and it, it we'll dive in deep because uh, what else are we going to do, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's the off Yeah. <laughs> Uh, that what I'll be looking for, you know, I, I, I hate to say this out loud and I would love to be proven wrong. I I sort of think that the ducks are not going to win the the world series this year. Um, we are, uh, bill, I think that we are seeing, you know, Lombardi build a team that can compete for that. But, you know, I think that project is still underway. The thing that I'm most interested in seeing this weekend is bounce back. You know, I I don't want to see sulking. You know, I don't want to see sort of what I saw towards the end of that Cal, the first game of the Cal series, where I think I was seeing fielding errors that were just like lazy, sloppy, we've lost, let's go home, you know, kind of stuff. Like, I I want to see good attitude out of this team. You know, they just got, you know, hammered by what is probably a better team. They're playing a team which may or may not be a better team than them. They're at home. I want to see some pride. You know what I mean? Yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. Completely agree with you there there's uh, there's nothing they have nothing to be ashamed about or nothing to mentally get them down from this last weekend
0: it's going to be a test for the coaching staff to like get them back up like you just played a tough series you got swept um you know you're going to play another tough series you know how how good is your ability to you know to, to to junk that you know to to not let them beat you twice um uh I, we will find out this weekend you can check all the coverage on addicted to quack let's take a break uh we come back we'll talk about baseball okay same story uh, different mound uh the uh baseball team also uh, traveled south to Los Angeles and uh, got swept by the UCLA Bruins um I uh, same question to start out with general impressions of this series
1: that the the Bruins pitching their starting pitching was just as advertised they they had some really good uh, starting pitching and kind of kept uh, the Oregon bats to a minimum uh, I think what stood out for me in this particular series is that the Bruins' relief pitching kind of stepped up to the task as well and kept uh, the Oregon Bats quiet. That said, uh, I felt like the Ducks were in each game and it was there for the win. Yeah, it's just that's not the way things fell out.
0: Yeah, I felt like this was all, you know, I think that UCLA softball is one of the best teams in the country, maybe the best team in the country. I don't feel that way, about UCLA baseball, I feel like the um – um The baseball team was more competitive with UCLA on this side. Um, You know, each one of the games was decided by a single run. In fact, it's a funny pattern. It's two to three, then three to four, then four to five. Um, Not, you know, certainly not any of the offensive explosion that we have been sort of accustomed to seeing out of the baseball team, Um, but it got better every game. Um, They sort of hit a weird slump in that second game against San Francisco. Unlike the softball team, they played a midweek series against San Francisco. And it's funny, it's like they they got all of their uh, uh, batting out of the way. That first inning of the first game against San Francisco, they put up 10 runs and uh in in all subsequent innings let's see the the 8 plus 9 times 4 so uh in the 44 consecutive innings uh afterwards you know they put up about that number of runs um the what do you think's going on with uh Oregon bats if anything um i don't uh, i'm really
1: not seeing anything differently from the trends we've seen up to this point, um, you know, they all, all batters suffer slumps, and I think it's been uh, a strength of this Oregon team this year that uh, if any one batter or two is slumping, then others are are picking up uh, their end of it, and I th- think that's still the case. We just saw that to a little bit lesser extent. Uh, this last weekend against UCLA.
0: The thing that's remarkable to me is unlike the softball side where I was seeing a lot of strikeouts, because like I said, I think the UCLA um, softball pitching is just elite. Um, it's not really what I was seeing out of UCLA or that San Francisco, that second game against San Francisco. um, what I was seeing instead was Oregon was swinging. Oregon was connecting. They were swinging early in the count. Uh, and it was just a lot of flyouts, you know, a whole lot of, you know, or grounders to to third base and, you know, they get thrown out at first. Like, I, you know, um, do you – is that the impression that you get too?
1: Yeah. There, uh, uh, there wasn't nearly as much in the way of strikeouts, like you said. And, you know, a couple of hitters – a um, couple of our duck hitters, you know, would take the outfield uh, up to the wall. And it's, you know, unfortunately still an out, but it's not very many feet from being over that wall.
0: Yeah, you know, that's, uh, I'm not sophisticated enough of a, of a baseball or softball appreciator to, um, to be able to say what, you know, like, why is it that that exact same hit uh, it would come off at a slightly different angle and therefore drop into the hole versus land in the left fielder's glove? Or why did it, you know, that exact same swing, you know, fall 20 feet short of being a, a home run um, instead of going the distance like it was in the past? I mean, uh, I really don't know the answers to those questions. Probably physics has something to do with it. Um, but it's like, like I said, they're not getting struck out. They're not getting intimidated by uh, the pitchers um they're not you know swinging to bad pitches um they're connecting and it's just like it's not quite going where it's supposed to (laughs) um but it's like i i feel like you know that's another question where they're they're not getting humiliated they're not getting run out of the park they're they're right there they just need to hit you know at a slightly different angle with a slightly more power um and and, you know, those games are there for the taking. So, it's you know, I wasn't really sweating it. Like, I guess I'll put it this way. As you said, you know, when the softball team sort of got behind against UCLA, it was like, oh, man, they're not coming back against this pitching. When they would get behind against UCLA, uh, I, I didn't feel that on the baseball side. Uh, I didn't feel that way at all. I was like, yeah, they just need to hit a home run here. Um, and then the home run didn't happen. But like, but it was, you know, that was a plausible goal, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the um, uh, like say all, all three of those games felt uh, quite winnable, and
0: I mean uh, Oregon yeah. was holding on to the lead in the Sunday game for most of the game. You know, UCLA needed to rally at the end in order to take that win.
1: Yeah, yeah, and so uh, a lot like the women' team, the the women's team, but differently. We'll just uh, see what kind of. Uh, mental resilience the the baseball team has and uh, I would expect that uh, mentally uh, they're not going to be in the same kind of uh, place because they were close every game it, it was there for the taking so you just kind of um, you know shrug it off and go out and do your thing again
0: well again you know like Lombardi taking over for Mike White um you know was taken over for George Horton like it's sort of there was a legend who hit his ceiling and it was time to make a change um and you know this is the new person who took over I think they roughly took over at about the same time uh was and, and Missy um and I, I sort of feel like you know this is you know, this is the clutch. This is the this is the time when when both of those coaches, you know, sort of show us, you know, what they're made of in terms of psychological managers of the team. You know, are they coaches who are gonna, you know, let the team sulk, or are they coaches who are gonna get them fired up for their next series? Um, you know, we'll find out. They're uh, they've got a uh, series against Ball State. Uh, uh, coming up this weekend uh, again in in Eugene uh, in Peaky Park. Uh, this one's actually a, a four game series. They're playing a the doubleheader on Saturday. Um, uh,
1: Saturday is going to be very busy with baseball and softball.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, th- three games in Eugene. Um, Ball State uh, is not the best team in the world uh, as they're 17 and 9 uh they don't play in a power conference you know they don't have a, a whole lot of uh you know real exciting wins on, on their schedule um i feel like these are you know in in normal circumstances uh you know, or if, if Oregon had been, you know, playing them, you know, coming off of a, a win or two in Los Angeles, I, I would probably just say, Oh, you know, they'll cruise, you know, it'll be a get right series. But I feel like this, this series, there's a possibility for a letdown here. Do you, do you, do you agree?
1: Yeah. And, um, maybe, um, a letdown that that turns into a win because, you know, for every one of these, uh, games against lesser opponents where they're, going into double-digit um, double, uh, double digit hits or, you know, double-digit lead. Um, there's another game where, you know, it's not spaced quite so far apart, and maybe they're winning by three runs instead. Um, I'm kind of looking for that to happen. Um, but the Ducks should be able to uh, handle ball state
0: uh i i just want more often i want more fireworks I, I i that's it like i'm i'm hopelessly addicted to the long ball now um i i, I want to see like 12 to 2 wins uh from now on uh it's the only thing i care about uh i'm i'm only partially joking i mean I, i'm just sort of astonished by some of these you know run counts that they put up such that like a perfectly reasonable baseball score like, you know, four to five in that Sunday game. I'm just like, where are the bats? I'm upset about this. (laughs) It's like 90% of the time as a baseball fan, like four to five, it's like, Ooh, they were really heating it up. Uh,
1: (laughs) Well, that's kind of the best thing about um, duck baseball these days is they have a long ball, they have hitters and uh, the game's more exciting than we would have envisioned you know, four, six, eight years ago.
0: Yeah. All right. Let's uh, take a break. Uh, when we come back, we'll talk a little bit about football. Okay. Uh, football spring practices have started up. Have you been following them at all?
1: Yeah. I've been following some of the interviews, uh, what people are, are saying. Uh, I thought it was um, – um, interesting that Lanning let the media in and to practice the other day. And, and so um, we got a a chance to uh, see uh, where some of the quarterbacks were um, positioned with the the ones and twos and that kind of thing. And, and, It doesn't mean anything. I I kind of agree with the uh, analysis that it was uh, a savvy uh, media move. But, you know, he certainly doesn't want to be uh, alienating uh, any of his quarterbacks because, uh, you know, I I think we will be seeing at least one quarterback uh, entering the the transfer portal uh, after the spring game.
0: That's an interesting thought. Um, I, I suspect I, I, I'll, I'll take that bet. I actually don't think it's going to happen after the spring game. Um, uh, I do think it'll happen by the end of the season. Um, uh, it, it, you know, assuming it's a normal season in which, the, you know, they pick a starter, that starter plays the entire season, you know, like if if injuries or unavailability start happening and you get a real rotation, then sort of all bets are off. But uh, uh three quarterbacks is a pretty normal sized room, especially given that like, you know, uh, people have been referring to Bo Nix because he's a, you know, a transfer who's been a starter for a couple of years is like, he's a I feel like there's a misconception out there that he's a grad transfer and that he's a one-year rental. He's still got three to play two because the 2020 season didn't count. And he played as a true freshman in 2019. So he's only played, you know, two seasons that count 2019 and 2021. Um, So, you know, even though I feel like a lot of people believe that if he has a good season, he's going to go pro. And so therefore, you know, it's six of one, half a dozen of the other, like technically speaking, that dude could, take a red shirt and be playing in 2024. Like, um, you know, the idea that if, you know, if he doesn't, if he doesn't have the job locked down after the spring game, that he's got to go because otherwise he's not going to be able to play and put any tape before the NFL for his you know draft, which is, you know, he's going to be forced to do at the end of the season. Like that's just not True at all. Um, so, you know, that's and 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 the same thing, like that time pressure doesn't exist for any of the quarterbacks, and that's usually the reason why you see, you know, quarterbacks bouncing after the spring game. So uh I, I would I would not bet on that happening, but I don't know, I've been wrong before. Uh <laughs> well the um
1: uh, I think there's a, a true competition going on and you know, for sure, and and uh anybody can be winning that starting spot and that's not going to be happening by the end of the spring game. And nobody does that, but uh, hopefully we can get uh, an idea of uh, through play where the, where the players think that they're at. Uh,
0: just think yeah it'll be interesting it'll also be interesting if they continue to have that media access like it's not they're not giving them access to the full practice they're just giving them access to like a, a particular sliver of practice to right. you know sort of appease the media and build some goodwill which is probably good politics but like the the e- the media is never going to get good quality information out of like, Oh, this guy's with the ones and this guy's with the twos. Like you're never going to be able to infer much out of that, you know, that's reliable, but what you are going to be able to get access to is early injury information. Like this dude hasn't been playing or this dude doesn't appear to be on the team. And like, boy, that's valuable information. I got to say for, for someone like me who, um, who maintains, you know, roster databases of the entire PAC 12 teams that let you do that. I like those teams a lot more. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, I like being able to, you know, be, make some predictions off of that. Um, uh, Oregon's taking a bunch of transfers. A number of them were on campus. Um, we, we've talked about one already, Bone Nix, uh, who I've written about, you know, because he, uh, Kenny Dillingham was his quarterbacks coach at Auburn in 2019. Um, uh, for, Nix's debut as a true freshman. Um, That season's actually kind of interesting because, you know, Gus Malzahn was the head coach there. That was 2019, was one of the years where Gus Malzahn took play calling duties back. That dude actually went back and forth a bunch during his time at Auburn. And, you know, he's like, he'd hand off play calling responsibilities and he'd take them back, and then he'd hand them off and then he'd take them off back again. And that was one of the years where he took it back. And so it's sort of like it's a different offense than Mike Norvell's offense. And I don't think that uh, Dillingham was involved much in, um, you know, the, the real hands-on, um, play calling, uh, of it. I mean, he was probably involved in some game planning and that sort of stuff. Um, but really I think that he was, you know, mostly acting as a quarterback coach for Bo Nix. And frankly, I liked a lot of what I saw. Um, I, I, he, he earned SEC rookie of the year and I think he deserved it. Um, Uh, a lot of what I saw out of it, was like, I think this is pretty good quarterback play. He's making his RPO reads at a very high level, which is, you know, like number one criteria. Um, and, uh, uh, for the type of offense that I expect out of Mike Norvell. Um, anyway, uh, there was more downfield passing than I was expecting to see. Um, And, uh, you know, I've, I've gotten on record recently as saying like the thing that I think is the, have been the bottleneck, uh, in Oregon's offense for the last several years, um, is not some of the like bugaboos that fans often, you know, come up with, you know, uh, the, the, the number one thing is that I I just don't think the quarterback coaching has been at the highest level, um, and specifically like getting the quarterback to pull the trigger, on downfield passing when the dude's open or is open enough, you know, to, to take the shot, like trust your receiver, take the shot. Um, and I think that comes down to the quarterback coach, like convincing his quarterback to take that shot. I don't think that's been present for Oregon for the last four years. Um, I, I think the other aspects of what Oregon does on offense has all been fine over the last four years, except for that. And that's what I was seeing out of, you know, Knicks and Dillingham. Um for Auburn in 2019. And so if, you know, Nick's becomes the starter for Oregon and Dillingham is the quarterback's coach and he continues to convince him to take those downfield shots, like I'll, I'll be a happy camper. Um, like even though it's going to make other people disappointed, uh, you know, Ty Thompson and Jay Butterfield among them, like I'll, I'll be happy with it. I mean, frankly, I don't really care who's pulling the trigger. I just want someone to pull the trigger. Like that's been the really frustrating thing about doing film study of this team for the last four years is like, you When you go rewatch that play four or five times because you're writing an article about it, and you're like, that dude is open. Justin slash Tyler slash Anthony like to take it take it like it's 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 maddening it's frankly maddening um it's and then it's maddening on Tuesday when I published my article and people are like this is you know Mario Cristobal is in the microphone in his helmet telling him not to make the throw and it's like that's not how football works dude uh you know it's it's the kid and if the kid's not doing it, it comes down to the quarterback coaching. Oregon needs better quarterback coaching is, has been my conclusion. And, and with Dillingham, there are some signs they might get it.
1: Yeah, I, I would hope so. They, uh, the fact that, um, Herbert's doing as well as he is in the pros, uh, kind of points to a lot of his natural talent and, and you're right. He, uh, didn't really land with uh, a quarterbacks coach that could uh, do something with him. You know, when the, this last season, uh, one of the things that um, always bothered me during the games would be the, the amount of times that uh, Brown would throw behind or uh, over his receivers. Mm -hmm. So, um, what what are your impressions about um, how that went down with Brown? Because I, I know that's 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 a lot of fan frustration and driving me crazy.
0: Yeah, I, I think there's two different things going on with Brown. I actually think there's three different things going on with Brown. I will explain all of them. Um, the number one thing and the least mysterious thing is simply he's not the world's most accurate passer. That was uh, the case at Boston college. You know, I did that re- uh, review of all three seasons that he was a starter of Boston college back in the, uh, the, the fall of 2020 when we got our late start for football it's how i occupied my september and october was writing articles about some of these new players anthony brown was one of them i reviewed his boston college tape and i was like there's a lot of stuff to like on this tape the thing not to like is that he's got the thing is he's, he has a three quarters release like he doesn't fully extend his arm over his head to make his pass he releases it with uh, at, at about Uh, three quarters of that full rotation. It means that it's a little bit low um, and it comes out a little bit hot. And what that leads to is some swats at the line. There was one game that he played, I believe it was against Purdue at Boston college where he had four swats at the line in the same game. And it was just like, Jesus Christ. Um, (laughs) Anthony. And just, yeah, like you said, sometimes it throws behind this receiver or, you know, at his feet or whatever. It's just like, he doesn't have as fine tuned control. And it's like, and that's, I mean, a really great quarterback coach maybe could have trained that out of him, but, but that's probably, he was so late. Like he actually was unlike what I was saying about Bo Nix, he actually was a grad transfer and it was probably too late in his career for that to be corrected. And he just sort of the way I phrased it um, on another podcast, you know, after like week two or three of the season was just like, you're just going to have to take seven points off the board every game that Anthony Brown is your quarterback because of the accuracy tax. Um, it's just, it just is what it is. Um, that's number one. Number two is I, um, he was running an RPO offense. He was actually fairly effective at the RPO offense, except for two games. Those games were against Arizona and against Stanford. And if you actually map out his RPO read, um, correctness, uh, what you find is, you know, it's 95%, 95%, 95%. Uh, then he's, uh, he, he takes a hit to the head um, in that Stony Brook game in week uh, three, right before the half. He sits out the entire second half. Uh, Mario Cristobal very hot at the opposing coach. Um, next week is against Arizona. His RPO read, uh, uh Uh, correctness takes a huge nosedive it's down to like 65 percent. same thing against Stanford and we all saw it in that Stanford game it's just like Anthony what are you doing like that is not the read like that that goal line fourth down play or it's just like that's what do you that's not it you know man um and then they had a bye week uh, and the next game was against Cal and the happy news is from week seven against Cal on his RPO read accuracy goes back up to 95% again. Um, mm-hmm. and so it, that's one of those things that sort of confused fans. Cause they were like, he's, he's really bad at his RPO reads. And it was like, he was bad as RPO reads for two games. It seemed to have a pretty discreet cause and it seemed to have a pretty discreet end. And, and then it wasn't a problem again. Um, and I don't want to speculate what happened. I know I just said that he took a hit to the head and, you know, everybody can connect the dots out there. Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to do it for you, but like it, at, at what I can confidently report since I did the film study and charted every one of these games and can tell you what the correct RPO read is. It's not that difficult. Um, is that it, it ended after two games in a buy. Um, so that that's factor number two of what was going on with Anthony Brown. Factor number three, is the mystery th- that uh, we will probably never have an answer to and it, it infuriates me and drives me up the wall to this day and, and uh, which is where was the deep ball anthony um because at boston college he um was operating not this offense he was operating as a very like pro style run 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 play action pass run 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 play action pass his um his running back was uh um aj dillon uh uh the great you know nfl running back um and uh uh you know like just a huge amount of the offense went through that guy and defenses would react to it and then you know they'd pay it off because the defense would would stack the box and they'd you know play action pass and he'd hit these long bombs and i mean they were beautiful long passes i put you know I I mean, I'm not kidding. I had a hundred clips of him making beautiful, deep play action passes that were accurate. Like he was more accurate making those play action passes than he was, you know, making the, you know, over the middle throws, you know? Mm -hmm. And then he comes to Oregon and it disappears. Like he, he, he's not making the passes. He's attempting some of those passes. He'd attempt, you know, one or two or three a game. And just like, they weren't there. And. I don't know where that happened. I think he had the green light to make those throws because like I said, he'd try them a few times every game, but he wouldn't make them. And then to really complicate the mystery second half of the Alamo bowl, you know, the last half of football, that guy's probably ever going to play. Uh, all of a sudden he's hitting the deep ball again. Like he can't miss uh, to these yeah. young wide receivers and like uh you know, I I feel like I have accurately described what happened. I cannot possibly describe why that happened. It is a a bizarre mystery to me. Um, I I don't know why that was. It probably has something to do with inadequate uh, uh, quarterback coaching. Like I would hope that um, good quarterback coaching would prove I think what a good quarterback coach does is not make a bad quarterback into a good one. I don't really think anybody can do that. If you're a bad quarterback, like that's, you know, blame God. Um, the, But what I think a, a quarterback's coach does is make a good quarterback, a consistently good quarterback. So that what you get on snap one is the same thing as you get on snap. 10 as on snap. 30 as in snap a hundred. Sure. And. Boy, I'll tell you from watching Justin Herbert and Tyler Shuck and Anthony Brown, you know what I, what, you know, what I was not seeing was bad quarterback play. I absolutely was not. All of those guys had the physical tools to be successful, you know, quarterbacks, and they would repeatedly show it in every single game. They would, They put great throws on the board. Um, For anybody who thinks Tyler Shuck was the worst quarterback in the universe, like not true. Go back and watch that tape. He was making some pretty damn good throws. Um, What you were absolutely not seeing was consistent performance. You were not seeing every snap like this is i'm a machine you know like and i think that's what a quarterback coach does and i don't think that oregon had a quarterback coach who was doing that over the last four years and i hope that they now do with kenny dillingham cross your fingers knock on wood
1: yeah yeah i do too uh i'm going to be going to this month's spring game it's gonna be my first spring game in quite a while the the last spring game i attended um I was actually working for an outfit and I was in the press box and there was this, uh, quarterback called, uh, Marcus Mariota.
0: Oh, you were that, that one, huh?
1: Yes. And you could tell right away that, uh, he was all that and more. Now I, I don't expect, um, anything like this, you know, by any means at, um, at this year's, spring game um but we're going to see um the fundamentals of uh, a a little bit different offense aren't we um what are what are the things that you're going to be looking at um out of you know the the spring game offense
0: well, first and foremost, I'd like to know what the offense is going to be. Um, you know, I, I did a whole project on Kenny. Well, I do two different articles on Kenny Dillingham. One was as a quarterback's coach, which as I said, was left me feeling pretty optimistic. Um, at, at, you know, as I just spent a long time talking about at the one position where I feel like Oregon staff has been lacking, um, the last couple of years and has been the bottleneck. Um, the other article that I wrote, the first one of the two, um, was about what kind of offensive scheme he might run. Um, and I made some guesses, uh, basically since, you know, of the eight years he's been a college coach, seven of them have been, uh, under Mike Norvell, um, that it will be Mike Norvell's offense. Cause you know, It's probably all he knows, but like, it's theoretically possible that he's been reading books about the air raid and decides he's <laughs> going to install that, you know, for all I know. Um, so I definitely want to get my eyes on that question. Um, if it is Mike Norvell's offense, um, for anybody out there who hated Joe Moorhead's offense, um, I don't think you're going to be like in love with this one. Um, on the other hand, I sort of feel like a lot of people who hated Joe Moorhead's offense Uh, I don't want to call you bad football fans, but like that, it wasn't the offensive structure that was a problem. In fact, I think the offensive structure was really good. I think the problem was, like I was saying earlier, as a quarterback's coach, he was not getting Anthony Brown to take deep shots um, or Tyler Shuck to, to, you know, play consistently. Um, and that if you had exactly the same offense, but a quarterback who was doing those things, that every Oregon fan would have a smile from ear to ear. Um, and so quit complaining about the structure. You don't know what you're talking about. Um, and uh, with Mike Norvell's offense, you're probably going to see a very similar RPO-based you know, structure. Um, there are a couple of differences. Uh, the, the, the triple option RPO that I spent a lot of time writing about last year at of Joe Moorhead. You're, I did not see that at the Memphis or Florida state film that I watched. Um, Although, you know, for all I know, Kenny Dillingham, who's just spent a bunch of time watching Oregon film, because that's the first thing you do when you show up in a new job, is like, what are these players that I've inherited? You know, and, and 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 so you watch film to find that out. Maybe he watched that play a bunch of times and was like, you know what? I should put this in the playbook. These guys are pretty good at it. They know how to run it. Uh, it was a good play. So maybe we'll see it, for all I know. I guess that would be something to watch for in the spring game. Um, the the other thing is, and I don't have a good re- uh, explanation for why this is the case, but Joe Moore had was really reluctant to have downfield throws to the tight ends uh in 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 Oregon's offense he would throw the ball to the tight end but in those triple option type of plays um where it's more like a lateral or almost a screen pass um it wasn't really going downfield much uh I don't know why that is because he was doing it in other offenses like he'd do it all the time in Penn State and Mississippi State and Fordham and UConn and and even even Akron the tape that I started out with um so I don't know why they wasn't doing it at Oregon. It's not because they lacked four good tight ends at Oregon. They had three of them who could definitely catch the ball downfield. Um, and, uh, but I can uh, happily report that at Mike Norvell, uh, it, it, the offenses that I watched his he, him run at Memphis and at Florida State, they were thrown downfield at the tight end all the damn time. Um, and I really feel like that is a scheme plus talent combination that Oregon potentially has that could be dynamite. Um, so that that's, I would, I would say if everything goes as I expect, um, which I could be totally wrong about, but if everything goes as I expect, and they're installing Mike Norvell's offense and they're throwing the ball downfield to the tight ends again, I'll be a real happy camper. Uh, that, that was an element that I wanted to see more of last year. And I hope I do in the spring game.
1: Yeah. Uh, you would hope that, um, that taking advantage of, um, the height difference between a tight end yeah, know, yeah. in the secondary is just is something that seems like it's automatic to, to me, but what do I know?
0: Well, and there's ways of engineering those guys to be, you know, wide open too. I mean, that's why I put a bunch of clips in my, my article about in that first Dillingham article about it, where like uh, I actually tweeted one out. Um, the, the opponent was Miami, um, where Florida state uh, is taking on the defense um, and out of the same structure in the, in the same possession, um they run 3 different plays that are completely different and they're they're sequenced off of each other. So the first play, the quarterback starts to do one thing and he keeps the ball. And then the next time around, the defense reacts as though the quarterback's going to keep the ball. And then he, he starts to keep the ball, but then he pitches it to the running back. And the running back, you know, has a clear lane. He goes, runs and gets a bunch of yards. The next time, I literally the next play, they line up, same formation. Defense is like, okay, the quarterback could keep it or he could pitch it to the running back. Okay, we need to resolve this. The tight end starts to block and then he leaks out downfield the quarterback starts to pitch it to him and is like ha ha sucker and he pulls the ball back in his hand and throws it the other way to the tight end who gets like 20 yards uh and like that's totally engineered. That's schematic, right? Like it's not only schematic, but it's sequenced. Which like, ooh, as a, as a film reviewer, just mm, chef's kiss. I love seeing stuff like that. And I put all those clips together and tweeted it out. And uh, seems like some Oregon fans have a beef with Miami for some reason, because a lot of folks seem to enjoy that Miami was suffering. Um, I can't imagine why. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, yeah, no, like you know, stuff like that. Like assuming that that has rubbed off on Kenny Dillingham. Like I think you could see that sort of stuff with Oregon, which I think would make a lot of Oregon fans happy.
1: Now, I don't know if you uh, saw uh, Dillingham's post-practice interview from, uh, I don't know if it was yesterday or Saturday, where uh, he was saying that uh, we'll probably be seeing some uh, quarterbacks setting up behind the center, which has been the case in quite a while. So what are your thoughts on that?
0: Um, He did that a little bit uh at memphis um you know he did a lot of stuff at memphis that didn't wind up showing up in the florida state playbook like they were doing a ton of wildcat they were doing some under center stuff the under center stuff i don't want to call it a gimmick but it was like um it it wasn't the default operating mode of that offense it was for okay we need to get a quarterback sneak in here or you know or one play this one showed up in my article um uh where it's like they're set up in this very Stanford looking you know I formation 23 personnel uh, you know under center you know it's in a short yardage like third and 2 situation it looks you know looks exactly like there it's going to be a fullback dive or something um and then right before the snap they Explode out to a spread formation, like all the tight ends run out to a spread formation, and the defense does not properly adjust. Like, they're like, What's going on? I don't understand. Uh, and they're in a situation where they've got two over three, which can't do that. That's not enough people to cover that many dudes, and they throw it to wide open dude, and he walks forward for five yards to get the first down. Um, like, there's uh, you know, if anybody out there is thinking like this is going to be the 85 Bears, like, I probably not you know you're, you're gonna see some under center stuff maybe but like i you know again i don't want to call it a gimmick but it's i doubt it'll be the default operating mode of the offense um i i also saw in that i basically didn't take anything that he said in that interview seriously you know he's just mm-hmm. like you know football's about one-on-one matchups but we also want to you know create space and it's just like okay coach you know that's like saying i want to have pizza and hamburgers just like <laughs> everybody yeah. wants to have pizza and everybody wants to have hamburgers and you know people aren't ordering them both at the same time and you can't have two dinners like you know or yeah. or it, it,
1: it's coach speak
0: or it's like we, we want to do pro style but like spread it out and go real fast i'm just like coach that's not a thing like uh you know just like you're just trying to you're just saying everything you're just like (laughs) and and so it's like i don't really take any of that seriously well what i take seriously is the the memphis and florida state tape um and that paints a particular picture and i wrote an article about it so go read it right i
1: and and that's going to be kind of the most interesting thing about the spring game as far as the offense goes is what kind of fundamental pieces, uh, fundamental plays, uh, are they having the, uh, the players work on and, you know, uh, what kind of hints, uh, might we glean about how this offense is going to operate in the fall?
0: Yeah, well, we'll get, we'll probably get major structural like this sort of it's like remember in high school biology when you got your uh, microscope and there was a fine adjustment knob and a coarse adjustment knob the, the spring games, when you get the course adjustment knob, you, you get like general picture of, of what the offense wants to be. And it's, you know, how they think about scoring, but in terms of like, oh, they're going to call this play out of this formation and this play out of that formation. Like, nah, man, that's the fine adjustment knob that happens in fall camp. Like, you, you know, just don't take any of that too seriously.
1: Yeah. Yeah, looking forward to seeing it for sure. Uh, on the defensive side, I don't think we're going to see huge departures from what Oregon's defense has done before, uh, but what's your take on that? Um, what are you going to be looking for Well, uh, on defense?
0: Y- yes and no. Um, I think uh, uh, Tim DeRuiter was a... Uh, Came late to the tight front or came late to the 4i 04i uh, defensive line configuration. Um, he's a 505 guy for most of his career. And then at some point when he was the head coach at Fresno State between 2012 and 2016, he moves those defensive ends inboard a bit to try to clog the B gaps. He basically sees the rise of the spread offense and realizes that you know, what you need to do against the spread is clog up those B gaps and spill and kill force the, um, force the ba- the back to bounce outside, because that will buy you time to, to bring your linebackers and safeties who are playing back against the pass to come down and, and get the so spilled, um, running back. So, uh, Tim DeRuiter was not a stranger to that um, philosophy, but uh, the, the tight front and the mint front stuff is just taking it a step farther. Like in terms of uh, the, 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 the core operating principle for, for the Lanning, Lupoi, um Kirby Smart, uh, Nick Saban, you know, stuff that's coming out of Georgia um, is the pass can hurt you more than the run. And so it's basically sell out to stop the pass, but don't totally sell out. Do what the the do the minimum you need in order to get not get killed by the run, um, but otherwise try to stop the pass at all costs. That wasn't that philosophy. Will be new to Oregon. Tim Ruder was definitely trying to stop the run, um, and uh, um, and so I don't know. Yes and no. Like the, the I think in terms of like defensive personnel changes like seeing you know players get recategorized the the way that like going from Avalos and Tim to was kind of a fraught transition because it's like Ooh, this isn't, you know, th- those guys aren't really the right weights and so forth. Um, that's not going to be a problem. Um, but you know, it will be a different defense. Um, and, and then you're also like, because of the injury problems last year, you had stuff, interesting stuff taking place. Like Jeffrey Bassa was converted from mm-hmm. a safety to a linebacker. Apparently he's continuing as a linebacker, which I was not what I predicted. I would predict that he would have gone back to safety because Oregon needs help at safety. Um, and there's a couple other, but and apparently the way that they're solving that is moving Jonathan Flo, Justin Flo's little brother, to be a safety now, which is that's an interesting choice. I'm looking forward to seeing that. But these are all sort of like minor uh, personnel matters that I'll be keeping an eye on in the spring game, certainly. But it's not like you know, I, 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 I doubt you're going to see like a massive schematic change versus what Dan Lanning was running at Georgia. Like I, I, th- I think you're going to see that, and and that maps pretty. Uh, um, you know, pretty simply onto what Tim DeRuiter was doing. So, in, in, you know, when you said that you don't expect massive defensive changes, I definitely agree with you there. But I do think there'll be some philosophical differences.
1: Yep. Well, um, hopefully we'll have lots to talk about after the, the 23rd. I'm looking forward to seeing how the decks present.
0: Yeah, I, uh, I've i got an article on Junior Adams, Oregon's new wide receiver coach and former Washington wide receiver coach. Uh, that'll be coming out on Tuesday. So basically the same time as this podcast. Um, I spent about half of that article bashing Washington um, for anybody who's interested in that. Uh, it, Junior Adams, you know, only spent the last three years of his career at Washington. I, I think there might be a misconception that he was one of the guys who came in with Chris Peterson in 2014 and went the distance like almost all of that staff did. But no, it's actually not the case. It was a real carousel at wide receiver coach. Um, and he doesn't come in until the very end. Um, he actually filled in at Boise state when Chris Peterson took all of that Boise state staff. Um, so anyway, uh, he's got a long career and most of it is very good. And then he goes to Washington and he sort of has some struggles, which I tend to blame on Washington. Um, which <laughs> it was fun to write um and then the next article that i'm going to do is on adrian clam the offensive line coach i'm working on that one now uh and uh that's more of a checkered past i actually you know i'm not super thrilled with the hire to be honest uh it'll it won't be a real uh um real positive article but it won't be like total negatives either i think some good stuff
1: all right
0: and then I'm going to take a break. Uh, I, I'm going to take a week off. Um, I'm, I'm going to be traveling a bit uh, for the next couple of weeks. Um, and then we'll get back for the last week of April and, and I'll get into swing doing um, my duck dive series into the rest of the Pac-12. Uh, virtually everybody plays um, their spring game um, by the by April 23rd. So, you know, we'll start to get some, some, some of that same data about the rest of the Pac-12 and, and Oregon's future opponents.
1: Yeah, good. Looking forward to it.
0: All right. I think that's going to do it for this week. Uh, it was great talking to you. Um, and, and uh, we'll look for some more baseball coverage. Uh, there's also a bunch of other spring sports that that are, uh, ongoing, uh, lacrosse, golf, uh, tennis, uh, beach volleyball, or uh, competing in a lot of stuff and and we're doing our best to cover Addicted to Quack.
1: Yeah. Who would have thought, uh, Oregon's a tennis team. Of course. Yeah. Uh, probably Apparently. The, the moment I say that they'll, uh, go to ucla and get shut
0: up yeah right all (laughs) right uh good talking to you have a good week
1: yep good